Hi, I'm Deirdre Veldon and this is Confronting Coronavirus, a podcast on the COVID-19 outbreak. As the race to develop a vaccine continues, the question of how it will be supplied and distributed once it's here is now under the spotlight. Billions of euro have been given to the global research effort, but in most cases, there are no preconditions put on the funding to ensure access or affordability when the vaccine is eventually produced. Companies should not be selling future doses of their potential products to just whoever approaches them first with top dollar. I mean, I understand why they do it. They're a profit-motivated, profit-seeking industry that unscrupulously tries to make their shareholders happy, right? In today's episode, we hear from Kate Elder, Senior Vaccines Policy Advisor for Médecins Sans Frontières Access. They're calling on governments across the world to ensure any future vaccines are sold at cost and are universally accessible. But how likely is it that public health will come before profit? Médecins Sans Frontières has called on governments around the world to make sure that there is no profit to be made on future vaccines. How can they do that? Uh, It's a great question, actually, because what is actually binding? I guess that's the question, right? What do people legally have to adhere to? And um, as one of our first calls of action was for these products that are being developed to not be patented, for companies to not seek patents on them. Because if you truly want the vaccine to be a global public good, if you want it to be the people's vaccine, so to speak, well, then you shouldn't allow it to be proprietary. And there actually, disappointingly, has not been the political appetite to deal with some of the the roots of the problem in the biomedical research and development sphere. So since these vaccines are still being allowed to be proprietary, um, despite the tremendous amount of public resourcing taxpayer dollar that's already gone into the R&D around it, I mean, uh, more than $4.5 billion so far, um, what do you do next is a next step. To, to make sure that the vaccines are produced in adequate supply and priced reasonably um, and that it's not just first come, first serve to who's willing to put up money, but that those doses are allocated based upon public health criteria. And so I realize that I'm not directly answering your question yet, Deidre. I'm trying to um, communicate really the challenges around that when something isn't binding, right? And, and governments have chosen by and large to not put any strings on all the public funding they've put into these vaccines. So they're allowing pharmaceutical companies to still be the ones determining all those very important issues around the vaccine. So, so then, okay, what's the next step? Well, how do we make sure these vaccines are uh, affordable and they're not, um, the companies aren't trying to turn a huge profit on the back of this pandemic. Well, we just have to demand transparency around the costs. So if a company is saying, as many companies have been saying, that they'll charge a not-for-profit price, um, okay, why would we take your word for it? You have got to substantiate that with data. So that's what we're calling for is transparency from companies so that they can actually substantiate the prices that they'll be setting right now. And I think that's very important. And what countries are you looking at in terms of countries that have taken steps to override patents and how have they done this? 
unfortunately have not been very many examples of governments using the tools um, that they're allowed to to protect the public's health that are enshrined in the World Trade Organization's um, Doha agreement um, in the vaccines field. We've seen very limited application of those. But there have been some great initiatives that just to acknowledge um, uh, the work that uh, WHO has done for um, a technology pool, a voluntary technology pool that they've established that companies can voluntarily put their technology in, whether it's for um, vaccines or for therapeutics for medicines. And we hope, we actively hope, um, that companies will participate in those sorts of uh, mechanisms. Because uh, really, it's not only about, you know, who gets access to the first uh, to the first doses of these vaccines when they're available, but it's about taking every single step possible to really make the pie bigger, to make sure that we can produce huge quantities uh, of these first successful vaccines. And um, we can't just leave that in the hands of manufacturers. Everybody is waiting for a vaccine, but even when there is one, there'll still be big issues around availability and distribution to the global population, won't there? Absolutely. I, it's, I mean, the issue about um, supply, I think, is at the top of everybody's agenda. And we see how um, governments and other global health entities are reacting to anticipate that, right? We see the nationalism um, already being quite pronounced with bilateral deals that some high income countries are making in advance to try and tie up some supply. Um, and we see um, the efforts of some organizations that are trying to work in a more global pooled um, approach to strike deals as well. I think not only on the supply side, which is, of course, of paramount importance, but also just in terms of what these vaccines actually look like, right? Because for those of us, um, the organizations that work in developing countries, such as Medicine Sans Frontieres, um, the considerations around uh, how how a vaccine is packaged and what form it comes, how easy it is to use, things that we call programmatic suitability um, in the field are very important, right? Uh, I mean, MSF, one of the, the backbones of our medical care is delivering vaccines. So we have a lot of experience doing it. And we know the difficulties of getting it to populations that don't have consistent electricity, because vaccines require cold chain being refrigerated to people that you can't um, have contact with multiple times, but the vaccine requires a few doses for somebody to be fully protected. So also considerations um, such as those for the, the COVID vaccine pipeline are very important too. It's not only about what vaccines are ultimately licensed, it's about what populations are licensed for, age groups, and how easy it is to use them in, in low resource countries. And of course, it's not just vaccines that you want to protect from profiteering. It's also drug treatments in this area, isn't it? Yep. It's also medicines and diagnostics as well. Diagnostics are obviously also a very important part of the um, public health approach to combating the pandemic. All of these tools are going to have to be used in concert, right? I think we, there's a lot about the vaccines that we don't know yet, right? The efficacy, the, the target age groups. Um, uh, I think there's a lot of talk about vaccines being a, a panacea, and they certainly um, will be a, a, a very critical tool in the public health approach, but not to underplay the importance of what you're saying. It really is as well, medicines when we have them, and diagnostics to just know, um, yeah, who has this disease. Isn't there just a, a reality here, Kate, which is that a vaccine will, will be developed and it will go to the highest bidders? and they will not be developing countries where you are working? I think um, 
I think it is a very sobering reality when we see the announcement of these bilateral deals by high-income countries. You know, you've seen deals announced by the United States of America, by the United Kingdom, by the EU, uh, by four countries in the EU. Um, and certainly that does, not, uh, that does not reinforce the idea of global solidarity, where really we should be allocating these future vaccines based upon public health criteria rather than who can pay you know, top dollar and get to the companies first. I think, as you say, Deidre, I mean, that is just a depressing reality of how the world works, right? But at the same time, in parallel, there are initiatives um, being pursued to try and have a more global approach. Uh, I think understanding the challenges right now are timeline, who can do what first, right? And how governments are calculating uh, what they want to do um, for their domestic needs and how much they want to, to, to buy in both literally and figuratively to a global system. Um, and then, of course, the behavior of companies. I mean, companies should not be selling future doses of their potential products to just whoever approaches them first with top dollar. I mean, I understand why they do it. They're a profit-motivated, profit-seeking industry that, uh, that unscrupulously tries to make their shareholders happy, right? Um, despite these claims that, that it will be sort of the people's vaccine and it'll charge a not-for-profit price. So I, I understand it's very much in line with the traditional behavior of um, pharmaceutical corporations. But nevertheless, what we need is companies and countries to be saying, okay, pause. We will wait to allocate future doses of COVID-19 vaccines based upon public health criteria so that it's not the poorest countries um, that are you know, getting the crumbs of whatever is left over. Of course, a lot of these pharmaceutical companies are based in the US. Uh, how confident do you feel about uh, Donald Trump's ability or inclination to uh, help you with this? That's a good question. I think um, what we've seen so far from the behavior of the US government has not been very globally minded. Um, the US government uh, announcing deals with five uh, manufacturers that have potential vaccines. Um, but the US government has put a tremendous amount of public funding, of taxpayer funding, into um, COVID 19 vaccine research and development. And hopefully, will realize the benefit of thinking more globally um, in the long term. I mean, I, I guess what would inform that is seeing the epidemiology and what's happening with the pandemic domestically right now, right, where we have um, a huge number of cases and, um, uh, I mean, very concerning indicators right now of the spread of the pandemic, the spread of the virus um, here in the United States. Um, so, you know, truly understanding that, uh, that you can't just treat this from a domestic perspective. I mean, you can't be isolationist. You, you can't prevent people from going out and in from your borders, truly, right? So, I mean, it, it is, as everybody has been saying, very much in the interest of countries to, to think in a more global and um, holistic manner. Um, so, so, yeah, I would say that the, the indications from the U.S. government so far in terms of thinking multilaterally, thinking with a global um, hat on, haven't been very encouraging for sure. But hopefully, hopefully that will change. And MSF is working in a number of the developing countries that are affected, of course, by coronavirus now. What types of, of things are you seeing? What, what is that experience like? 
So more broadly, I think what we're seeing is the impact of the pandemic on ongoing health services. I mean, we are trying, it's twofold. I mean, we are trying to maintain as much as possible, you know, considerations of um, safety first, of course, but we are trying to maintain ongoing health services. And the consequences of um, quarantines and these very important public health measures in in places of the developing world where um, there's really high incidences of other diseases already and um, very scarce access to healthcare is, it's absolutely devastating, right? So, um, so what we're trying to do is we're trying to maintain services as much as possible, trying to maintain um, giving people antiretroviral treatments for HIV, trying to maintain routine immunization services for kids that are, um, that are still being afflicted by measles and other vaccine-preventable diseases, trying to still provide a space to deliver babies in maternity wards, right? Um, but it's very, very difficult. And um, I mean, I can just speak just to give some examples of what's happening through the small lens of, of what I work on, which is immunization, access to, to vaccination. Um, the consequences of this pandemic are that healthcare workers are working on the pandemic, so they're not there to vaccinate kids. Immunization services are being suspended. We, um, you know, there in Ireland and here in the United States, we don't typically do mass vaccination campaigns, right? People get their vaccines from going to a health center. But in developing countries, doing mass vaccination campaigns is a very important tool um, for boosting immunity and saving kids' lives. But obviously, you can't have a bunch of people gathered for a vaccination campaign, right? So, um, so I mean, those are being suspended. And there's been a lot of data in terms of what the consequences are of that, um, just using one example of measles. Um, getting supplies to countries, getting vaccines. Uh, at the start of the pandemic, it was very hard to get air cargo space. There was a absolute um, tremendous surge in the price of sending vaccines to developing countries. So just making sure you even have the tools there to maintain those um, health services. And then of course, people are scared to come out. People are scared to go to health um, facilities to, to maintain the immunization series that their kids so desperately need. So that's just one small example of what's happening in terms of access to vaccination. And if a kid gets a vaccine preventable disease in a developing country, they do not have the medical care that we have in these developing countries. You know, measles is incredibly contagious. Measles is incredibly dangerous for children. And if a kid gets it, they need treatment. Um, but the consequences of this pandemic is, are that people are either scared to go for treatment or they don't have um, the treatment options that they typically would that MSF is, is, is trying our best to maintain. But um, there are really some of these very dire consequences on access to the medical care in developing countries. So that was a long response. But I think it really does warrant um, a, a really important emphasis on what the consequences are in developing countries where MSF is working. And it's really, I mean, it is heartbreaking. It is, there's no other word for it, but it is heartbreaking for people who already have um, such limited access to healthcare to think of what's happening now and what potentially might happen in the future. So hopefully when these future vaccines are available, we, we desperately hope that they'll be going to the people who need them most first. Okay, thanks very much. My thanks to Suzanne Brennan who produced today's podcast and thanks for listening. Stay up to date with the latest developments at irishtimes.com. We'll be back later in the week.